Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and the same verses in Deuteronomy 5.18, but you don't have to turn there. Uh, it says the exact same thing. I do want to mention real quick that our book recommendation is by R.J. Rushduni called Larceny in the Heart. So that is one you can add to your library. It's a, a really good one of his. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. These are the words of God. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you that we could gather here this evening to sing, pray, look to your word, and be challenged for the great calling that you have placed upon us. We confess that we live in a generation filled with larcenous hearts, which is why we have come with repentant hearts. Help us to hear your words so that we might obey your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Larcenist hearts. We begin this evening with the problem of pietism. This will seem like a rabbit trail already. We just started, but it's not. Pietism, by way of a short definition, stems from this philosophical conviction that the world can be constructed on a dual plane. That is, an upper-level story and a lower-level story. That's actually Francis Schaeffer's illustration. Upper story and a lower story. Imagine for a moment a two-story house. The upper story is grace, the spiritual. Um, it's, it's not just the spiritual. Uh, it's also the transcendent. It's the pistic, which is the Greek word we get for faith. Um, what you must believe. That's the, that's the upper story. The lower level is the natural, nature itself, the material, the immediate, the rational, what it is you see around you. So these are the two stories of the house. And this division of life, which is a separation of reality, was in large part due to the work of the Greek philosophers as well as later men like Thomas Aquinas, though a lot of Aquinas' work is commendable. When the Enlightenment came along, on the scene around 15th, 16th, 17th century, around that time. And uh, Rene Descartes and his famous teaching, I think, therefore I am, when that came around, the rational man, what he could conceive, what he could think, became the center of all things. No longer was God the center of everything, it was what man could think, what he could assume with his mind. In order to get to the second floor of the house, it required a leap of faith. If you wanted to get upstairs, there was no stairway there, you just sort of had to put yourself there, this leap of faith. And in the world of the rationalists, they basically said, well, you have to sort of deny reality. If you want to go to the upper level of grace, the upper level of faith, the spiritual stuff, you, you sort of have to just put yourself there mentally. And when you do that, you tend to have to just ignore the reality around you. You have to deny the brain, the, the mind that God's given you, and so on and so forth. So for the rationalists, the people like that, uh, they put the mind at the center of the being. But guess what Christianity tells us? What is the center of the being of man? It's the heart. Proverbs 4.23, That's the wellspring of life. It's the center of all things. The heart is the center, not the mind. For many, what is observable, what is experiential, what you can see with your eyes is all that there is to the world. Moreover, this type of thinking, this humanist thinking in Christian circles gave birth to 
pietism. And that is, that's the belief that the upper story is all that matters. The upper story is all that matters. So read your Bible, pray, go to church. That's the formula. That's the only thing that matters in this life. So don't get involved in other stuff, right? In this case, issues of politics and business and economics, vocation, monetary supply, education, um, life insurance, and culture, just broader cultural things are, in that worldview, irrelevant pursuits. And also, it's a potential distraction from the real issues of the Christian religion. That is pietism. Furthermore, the pietist movement, which kind of spawned off of the Reformation, particularly the Lutherans, they're to blame. (laughs) The pietist movement drove a wedge between the law of God and the gospel of God as well. It drove a wedge between those things and what was uh, the natural outworking of this two-tiered approach to reality. Now, you might be asking, what in the world does this have to do with theft in the Eighth Commandment? Great question. Uh, it has everything to do with the Eighth Word because, just like the rest of the commandments, they pertain to love of God and love of neighbor. And, by the way, those two loves are intertwined. They're intertwined. To fulfill one is to fulfill the other. If you, if you help that person in need and you are serving your neighbor, that is also a fulfillment of the love of God requirement. And if you are going to love God properly and soberly, then you will, of course, fulfill the second part, love of neighbor. So again, if the world of the upper story, the spiritual, is the only thing that matters, then who cares if someone steals something else from an individual? After all, they're just earthly goods, right? You, you know... Be, I think it was R.C. Sproul who joked about that and said, if you want to um, prove these men wrong, just steal their wallet and see what happens. <laughs> They'll suddenly care about material things. Um, in, in, in that mindset, it's just stuff that can be replaced, right? If the, if the, spiritual, if it's, if the spiritual and not the physical matters, then quite literally one cannot obey the Ten Commandments. And that's what pietism gives us, and that's why the church is in the mess she's in right now, and that's why the nation is in the mess it's in right now. It can be traced back all the way to this two-storied approach of reality and pietism. Now, that also means that two things happen and that mindset. And if it's not clear already, uh, that mindset is not what we possess here. <laughs> um, there's one story, and the spiritual and the material is all in front of us, okay? But in that mindset, two things happen. One, pietists will develop a theology which emphasizes the gospel in a truncated fashion, and thus they will ignore the ethical aspects of the law. They will say things like, well, the gospel is Jesus died for me so I could go to heaven. And if that's all your gospel is, you are losing it. That's an aspect of the gospel, and one that's really not even that emphasized that much uh, in the New Testament. So that's one thing that'll happen. If if your gospel is Jesus saved me so I can go to heaven, you don't care much about ethics and the law of God as it pertains in the public square. You're just, it doesn't bother you. But the second thing that happens is that pietists will retreat from the culture and the world will become a rumpled mess. So that's, with with that two-storied approach to reality, that's the, the necessary outworking. You have to only put the gospel in the upper story. It has no lower story implications. 
And thus, the lower story stuff becomes irrelevant to you. You're just trying to think your way out of it. You're just trying to ascend yourself into this rapturous enlightenment of spiritual onlyism. And that's, of course, uh, a problem. Theological ideas have practical consequences. Theological ideas have practical consequences. Now, when you consider the breakdown of, of any social order, two things can be blamed. One, unregenerate hearts filled with larceny and covetousness are given over to their autonomous lusts by the sovereign hand of God. So when someone says to you, what's going on in America? Well, God's, um, he's letting us have our way. And uh, sort of the Burger King style of governance of the universe. Have it your way. That's what happens when you have unregenerate hearts that are filled with larceny, filled with theft, filled with covetousness, filled with adultery, filled with lying, filled with all these things. What happens is God, in His judgment, this is Romans 1, will turn people over, and that's, that's what happens. But the other thing that happens is retreatist Christians who see no value in the material and the physical, they contribute nothing but contempt for the ordering of life. So it's sort of like the building's on fire and you have unregenerate hearts who keep throwing gas on it and then you have Christians who are standing at a distance saying, I don't know, maybe we should call the fire department. Well, that might be, in, that might be too involved. Let's just see what happens. That's the scenario of our nation right now. So if it's all going to burn, what's the point, right? If it's just going to burn, what's the point? And that's what literally many ostensible Christians believe. Don't get involved in politics. It's funny, the people who say that are the first to vote, which is interesting. I don't understand that. Are you a Christian involved in politics? <laughs> we don't ever tend to go there. If you explain away the demands of the law without its connection to the gospel, and you emphasize the upper story in your bifurcated worldview, the result is a world stammering around in darkness, seeking ways to spend their autonomous dollars however they see, see fit. And perhaps one of the most subtle yet damaging ways this is accomplished is through theft. Theft. And theft looks like a variety of things. So let's look at our text again. Exodus 20, verse 15. I misspoke earlier. It's verse 15. It says, you shall not steal. In Hebrew, as we've seen before, there are two words, lo ganav in Hebrew, literally no theft. Uh, in the Hebrew language, it's just, that's it. Two, two words, lo ganav, no theft. Um, some contexts, it means no carrying away. The implication being, of course, kidnapping, something like that. Um, literally, the, the, the best thing you can do is when you look at, especially the Hebrew language, you sort of have to feel out the context. You have to kind of understand some of the other things that are at play. But really, what it's saying is no stealth, no stealing, no stealthy theft, uh, no larceny. You're, you're not allowed to take things that aren't yours. That, that's the idea. Now, the, prohib the prohibition here is something that Israel would have felt tangibly. I'm going to give you a, an, another reminder of a history here. Father Yahweh had redeemed and rescued Israel from the clutches of Egyptian theft. What was Egypt, Egyptian theft? Well, Exodus tells us in Exodus 1. I'm going to read these verses. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 14. Egyptian theft in this regard was the stealing of Israelite labor. They stole their labor. That's the very definition of forced slavery is to steal their labor. And uh, not to get too far ahead of myself, but when you think about stealing someone's labor, taxation falls into that. You are all being plundered day in, day out by a Leviathan state. It's theft, pure and simple. At the end of Genesis, we see that Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, that's theft again. Remember that story? The uh, brothers sold Joseph into slavery. They, they were thieves as well. And he had risen to prominence in Egypt, going so far as to uh, save his own family from starvation. That's how the end of Genesis works out. And the very people who had stolen from him, he saved. And in fact, uh, that's a picture of Christ's redemption, as we'll come back to later. But there was a new king in Egypt, a new pharaoh. He had forgotten where he had come from. And because he clearly had fear of man issues, he plundered the Israelites and by stealing their labor as well. Now, after the great Exodus redemption, we've talked about this from time to time during this series, Yahweh had rescued his son Israel with a mighty hand, graciously redeeming them and choosing them out of all the peoples out of the earth to bring them along and cut a covenant with them and establish a law order as a result. Now, as the suzerain king, Yahweh chose the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his vassals, and the giving of the law, we know, was done in the context of grace. The giving of the Ten Commandments was done in the context of grace. That is, Israel was in a perpetual state of being robbed. That's what sin is. It's theft of the image of God. And Yahweh brought them out of this injustice and into his marvelous light. So that's what the very first part of Exodus, they're being robbed, they're being plundered. And for God to do this to and for them was all of grace, all of mercy, all of sovereignty. Hence why when Israel was given this law, they would have undoubtedly felt it deep in their bones. They're standing at Mount Sinai receiving the law. Moses brings the law down. Remember, he smashes the first set because he's angry because they had made a golden calf, called it Yahweh. And uh, the greatest excuse in history was used. Well, we just threw the gold in and out came the calf. Likely story. And uh, so God's angry with them and he's going to, you know, destroy them essentially. But Moses intercedes and we have this moment of God giving the law again. And they have another set of the Ten Commandments, which ended up being in the Ark of the Covenant. But all of that was done out of out of, out of grace. So when they're sitting here hearing the law and Moses is telling them, you shall not steal, they're hearing, wow, that's what Egypt had done to us. They had plundered us. They were taskmasters and they were stealing our labor. They were the thieves. And God rescued us. Awesome. It's a picture of Christian sanctification, right? Jesus died for your sin. Why are you sinning? 
Stop sinning. <laughs> That's holiness and sanctification. Anytime we sin, it's in a, a moment of forgetting who it is Christ is and what he's done for us. Now, in the ancient world, theft didn't stop merely at taking someone's iPhone, especially in the ancient world, because there was no iPhone. But <laughs> theft was the prohibition of all sorts of stealing, man-stealing, what we call kidnapping. That was a death penalty offense. Remember, Abraham chases down the kings who had taken his nephew, Lot, and what did Abraham do? He killed them all because God hates man-stealing. That's why if we're going to end uh, human trafficking in America, we need to bring the death penalty back to the traffickers. It'll stop very quickly. Stealing of property through unjust boundary markers, trying to steal your neighbor's land, um, unjust weights and measures, using money, putting your thumb on the scale, that sort of thing, trying to uh, get more money out of somebody, that's theft. That, of course, includes the dilution and pollution of the money supply, which we can thank Nixon for that in 1971. Back then, of course, if you wanted to uh, cut corners, you literally cut corners. You shaved off the sides of the coins to try and make it seem like it was more valuable. Uh, or you can somehow get... Of course, co coins then were supposed to be real gold, real silver, but oftentimes you would make new coins with synthetic materials trying to make it worth more than what it actually was. That was, of course, something that God repeatedly condemns, even in the book of Proverbs. That sort of unjust monetary system is wickedness in the eyes of God. In fact, Proverbs calls it an abomination, toeva. More forms of stealing. Theft of time and labor through, through slavery, as we've seen. Um, you're not permitted. You could voluntarily put yourself, if you were in debt and couldn't pay, you could voluntarily go into servitude, but you were never allowed, like the U.S. chattel slavery system of the transatlantic slave trade that we've seen in our, in our nation's history, uh, you're not allowed to steal someone's labor. Uh, it's wickedness. Theft usually involves some sort of coercion, possibly bearing false witness to some degree, another violation, sometimes fraud, and sometimes violence taking something that's not yours by force. Uh, also, in, in Scripture, the basically the destruction of someone's property is considered theft as well. Uh, people who burn down buildings because they're mad at the world, that's theft. Cheating someone, whether they know it or not, is still theft. You, you could be cheating someone, and whether they, whether they know or not, it's, it's still sin, it's still theft. Just like adultery, theft is murder. The destruction of property and the theft of another's property is, in fact, an assault on the image of God in that person. Um, for many of us, have you ever felt this deep connection with stuff? Um, some more than others, we have terms for that. But if you, we call them hoarders, right? Uh, but we, we have things, and those things are ours. They're, it's an extension of who we are. It's our house. It's our car. It's our... You know, it's our iPad, it's our computer, um, that's our couch. Property is an extension of who we are. So to steal it is to essentially assault and thus have murderous intents towards someone who owns the property. That's how God viewed it in, in Scripture. Also, just like adultery, theft is more than an assault on someone else. It's an assault on God and God's ordering of life. Murder, adultery, theft, lying, coveting. 
all our treasonous acts on the throne room of God. It's also treason against your neighbor. No matter how evil a person may be, and no matter how wicked they have treated you, remember Joseph? We are summoned by Father Yahweh to obey this command. There, there is no, you shall not steal, unless they kind of deserve it and they're jerks about it. No, it's not how Christians act. Now, recently, I was accidentally given a fairly large sum of money at the bank. <laughs> this is a great story. Um, if cashing a check or simply withdrawing cash, whatever it is, I normally pull, I, I, I do the transaction and I pull up slightly and I check. Because I don't want to be defrauded either. So I check and uh, <laughs> they gave me a lot of money. Uh, and it's a good thing I checked because normally uh, some people just leave, right? You just leave. Well, I realized something was very long, wrong because the uh, envelope they gave me was very thick. And I was like, how did this happen? So I backed up. Thankfully, no one was back there yet. I backed up and just kind of with a smile on my face, I said, like, ah, I think we have a problem. And she knew right away. She's like, I gave you too much money, didn't I? And uh, <laughs> I... I I said, yeah, you did, and here, you need to take it back. And, and she nearly cried. She was almost brought to tears because she said, thank you. You know, I would have lost my job had you pulled off. And um, good thing we have honest people out here and so on and so forth. And, and, I, and I said to her that, you know, had I done so, it would have been theft. It's not my money. And, and she's just like, she had tears in her eyes. And it was just like a weird moment of, you know, those things, you know, if, kids, quick, real quick, you know, if you're walking along, this happened at a Prince William Fairgrounds a couple years ago. We were walking to uh, get food that would later not be good for us, but we were walking there happily, and uh, I can't remember if it was Avery, I, I don't remember who found it, but a $20, I think it was a $20 bill was there, and, and we picked it up, and you sort of immediately, I don't know why, you think you're rich, it's 20 bucks, I mean, can't even fill your car with it these days. And... So we kind of looked around, and then it, we saw people in front of us, and, hey, is this your $20? Yeah, 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 thank you. It fell out of her pocket, and, you know, all is good. So kids, if you ever find money, try to find the owner. If nobody's around, it's yours. So do something righteous with it. Buy your parents a gift or save it. That's fine, too. Now, a couple more exegetical remarks, and then I want to apply this. <clears throat> in the ancient Near Eastern world, a variety of approaches to theft was taken. Sometimes, in some cultures, a hand was cut off. <laughs> so you steal something and gone. Now, in biblical law, that's not the case. Uh, we don't cut people's hands off. Um, Sharia law, might, I'm, I don't know this is fact, but as far as I know, that might be the case there. Um, in biblical law, restitution is put in place. This is called the lex talionis. That's the law of retaliation. Exodus 21 tells us this principle it spells it out by calling it an eye for an eye. I'm sure you've all heard of that, an eye for an eye. Justice in God's world is to be reciprocal and measured. That is, usually the, the principle means, for example, that if someone stole $50 from you, the just thing is for them to give the $50 back plus another $50. And the logic is this. The thief suffers the loss that he intended to impose on you. That's sort of the logic. Now, 
The alternative to restitution in our world today is the prison system, which achieves nothing but plundering and th thievery of taxpayers. Uh, talked a little about the prison system and the politics of humanism. If you ever want to go back and listen, uh, prisons are the worst idea ever. In some scenarios, restitution looked like the return of the animal plus 20%. So for example, in scripture, if something like an ox is stolen, then the owner suffers not only the loss of the animal, but the profit that the ox represents. It's like stealing a John Deere tractor. I mean, you, you now have robbed him of his labor too. It's not just something he owned. So in this case, m something more is at stake than simply theft of, of personal property. You have loss of time, you have loss of labor, loss of a man's ability to work and provide for his family. That's why you have certain insurance, like uh, you know, even workman's comp or some, some of those things are in place so as to help in case someone's, someone's ability to work is hindered for some sort of reason. So that's the, those are the biblical parameters in a nutshell. How do we need to think about this today? When it comes to theft, we need to remember that personal property is something that God and God alone gives. Personal property is something that God and God alone gives. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which means that property ownership and stewardship that comes along with it is, and they are both thoroughly biblical categories. To be clear, I've already said it before, but things like property taxation is theft because God owns the land, not the state. And then you get to own the land, not the state. And then, of course, we know how that goes. If you stop paying property taxes, you are suddenly homeless. Um, which, by the way, that's all more wickedness that needs to be fought against. So throw that into the ring of the other things that we get ornery about. To claim sovereignty in the way that the state does is to usurp God. To claim authority over your property is to usurp God. And as we've seen, it's treason against the courts of heaven. The Communist Manifesto's plan to get rid of personal property and transfer it to communal property is such a scheme. The concept of private property stems from the doctrine of the covenant. As God's vice regents, we are to rule over the earth as subordinate prophets, priests, and kings. Part of the rulership is the dominion covenant. That is, we are to acquire property, wealth. Uh, we need to have wise stewardship in the world, that sort of thing. Those are all aspects of the God-given dominion covenant from Genesis 2. To take a man's property and his wealth or his wealth is to efface the image of God in him. God has holy things. We have holy things. These items are holy in the sense that they really do truly belong to us. They're really ours. But it's also a gift of God's grace. Money, for example, is a reflection of our labor. It's a medium of exchange. And the things that we own as good godly stewards are aspects of the covenant, life in God's world. It's dominion by stewardship. Now, one thing we need to remember is that wealth and property can only be acquired and accumulated through three just means. Labor is one of them. You work for it. So you work for it, and then you buy it. And then you spend the next 30 years paying it off. <laughs> uh, of course, in biblical law, you weren't allowed to... Uh, you could do loans for the poor, but you couldn't charge interest. And... Uh, Debts were not to go far past seven years because you had the jubilee, jubilee year. Um, labor is one aspect. Inheritance is another, right? Um, it's bequeathed to you in, in trust. 
So someone, uh, mom and dad give you gold and silver and Bitcoin and the 50-acre ranch with horses on it. I'm waiting for that. Uh, <laughs> so that's another way. Or gift. So labor, inheritance, or even gift. Someone is generous. Somebody has the capital that they can simply part with that thing, and they could give you a car. They could give you something because that's, that's where they're at. You can acquire things through those means. And along this line of thinking, J.I. Packer, Packer said this, It is not God's will for us to have anything that we cannot obtain by honorable means. And the only right attitude to others' property is scrupulous concern that ownership is fully respected. Great line. God doesn't want you to have something that you didn't get by honorable means. And your attitude towards someone else's property should be a scrupulous concern that ownership is fully respected. So theft is dishonorable means for unjust gain. It's not, the thing, it's not just that you stole it. Your heart's been polluted, that sort of idea. Theft is dishonorable means for unjust gain. It is the dishonorable striving for property via deprivation. You want to deprive somebody of, some, of something that belongs to them. So to steal something that rightfully and lawfully belongs to someone else is to deprive them of what God has given them. One of my favorite Bible verses is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you have not received it? So kids, what do you have that you haven't received? I mean, the clothes you're wearing, the pen you have in your lap, you didn't come into this world with that. It was given to you. Parents, same thing. It's, it's not really your house, right? I mean, well, it's kind of the states. That's, again, we have a problem with that. But, you know, the, the, your stuff is your stuff, but it's not your stuff if you're tracking. Paul essentially anchors all of life in this principle of ownership and stewardship. What we have been given is all of grace. And you might say, well, I worked really hard for that. I worked hard so I could get that car, that truck, or what have you. And right, you did. But who gave you the breath in your lungs to make sure you could carry that out? Don't stop with what you did. You didn't make your own heartbeat and your lungs pump air. You didn't make that happen. It's the fool who says in his heart, my might and my strength got me this. To quote Exodus and Deuteronomy as well. See, one of the greatest deterrents of theft long before restitution comes into play after the crime has been committed, is the principle of derivative ownership. Take money, for example. The reason people won't tithe or give away their money to those in need is usually because we think, like the rich young ruler, that life consists in the abundance of possessions and wealth. It's a trap, right? We, we, we think that life consists in the abundancy of wealth and possessions. We, that's, that was the rich young ruler's paradigm, and Jesus destroyed it all. Go sell everything. Why did he get sad? Because he had a lot of stuff. It was a problem for him. Now, that's not to say that the godly pursuit of wealth and possessions is inherently wrong. It's not. Not at all. Rather, it is to say that if we are not careful, we can be enticed to try to kick Christ off the throne of our hearts and install ourselves in his place. My stuff, my property, my gifts, mine, 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 it's all mine. Reminds me of the children's book we had, the, the Minosaur. The naughty dinosaur who wouldn't play in the playground with the other dinosaurs, and he wanted to take all the stuff they were playing with. Anybody else read it? Yeah, great book. 
great lesson. See, Jesus warned us that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and mammon. Rather, we ought to say, what I have, what I possess, all belongs to Christ. If he would have me give it away, then what loss would I actually experience if it's his? It's not mine to begin with. What loss would I experience? Nothing. A pastor friend, um, I've, I've never met him in person. We've, we've you know, only more recently interacted. He's out in Oklahoma. He's a good brother who's an abolitionist and is doing a lot of work. But uh, his, his house burned down. I think it was last year, if I recall, or maybe earlier this year. I don't remember. The years are a problem right now. And, uh, you know, what, what loss is it? If it's all Christ, it's his to dispose of if he needs to. It's, it's nothing, you know, sort of the Job, naked I came into this world and naked I shall leave. Um, that's the attitude we should have. The money we have and the things we possess are given to us so that we might steward them for the kingdom of God. When we won't give them away, if we hold too tightly, we are easily given over to larceny in the heart. What we face today is the same decision that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Respect the property boundary of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or take from it. Steal, seize. Adam and Eve made their choice. They had larceny in their hearts. They wanted what they wanted and they stole from God. And when we sin, we are not just battling things like jealousy or covetousness in the heart. We are battling thievery. We are battling larceny, to claim sovereignty, to steal from others, to, to jealously desire something that does not belong to us are all ways that we take from ourselves. Meaning, as God's redeemed people who are bought with a price, the assault is not just on others and it's not just on God, it's on ourselves. The third word tells us that we bear the name. Remember that? We bear the name which, as Lightheart points out, is God's property marker on us. It's God's property marker on us. So when we want to go our own way, misusing what God has given us, we are stealing God's property. We are stealing God's name, which is seated upon us. As has been the case throughout this entire series, the prohibitions and negative interdictions here in the Ten Commandments also implies a positive responsibility. So it's not just that we shouldn't steal, okay? So again, never leave just thinking, oh, don't do that. That is part of it, but it's only half of it. We should also actively respect God's law order for the acquisition of wealth and the discharging of our responsibilities in the dominion covenant. And this means that we should practice godly property rights. So if you borrow your, your neighbor's shovel and break it, I did that once. It was an old shovel. You might say it had an inherent issues. But I used it and I broke that thing clean off. I mean, it was, it was bad. So what did I do? I went and bought him a new one, a better one, a better model. I didn't give him extra 20% because his livelihood did not depend on his shoveling. But it was his shovel. And so I did that. And he was another pastor in town, so it was kind of a funny little joke. Parents, teach your kids principles of restitution. Teach your kids principles of restitution. It's a great time to teach them about socialism. <laughs> I don't know if you did that, Jordan, in your house, but Halloween candy is a great time for that, too. 
20% off the top is mine. That Hershey's is mine. But teach your kids principles of restitution when they hurt their sibling, when they take something they shouldn't have. Those are great opportunities to teach restitution. Um, thinking broadly, when it comes to a fighting against the overreach of the state and opting out of their corporate games, we must insist on property rights and the derivative ownership that we have in Christ. The state wants to consume and control all things. I don't have to tell most of you in here because you're experiencing it right now as they threaten your job, your labor. That's theft. But they, they want to consume everything. They want it all. They want it all. And they're thieves. They're a parasitic class who produces nothing and takes everything. So we should, like the prophet Elijah, uh, be in Ahab's ear. We should be defending Yahweh's law order and defending Naboth's vineyard against status plundering. The pattern we have in Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we wrap up, think about the gospel here. He didn't steal anything. Jesus didn't steal anything, but he expended his life in service to the Father so that we could be discharged from the debt of sin. He left the throne room of heaven, having all things, right? He left the throne room of heaven to come to the earth with nothing, in order to die with nothing, and in that he gained everything. As a new Adam, Jesus respected his father's wishes. He lived a life of self-sacrifice and service. Jesus did not give himself to lust, the lust of covetousness or theft. Rather, he gave everything. He gave everything. Like Joseph, Jesus was in fact sold into slavery by false accusations and theft. We put him on the cross. And yet Christ forgives us, and that's the beauty of the gospel. So we ask with the prophet, will man rob God? Will man rob God? Then give generously, serve courageously, and defend boldly. At every turn, God's law order must be restored, which means that we must repent of the larceny in our hearts so that we might go out and call others to repentance. And the the prohibition applies to all men, women, and children, all institutions, all corporations, all governments, all people, and therefore because of this, God demands that the totality of the dominion covenant be respected and be honored. And that's what we're after. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and ask for your blessing on the rest of our evening tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we uh, have so much found in it that we can sometimes merely scratch the surface. But you've given us a treasure trove of truth in your word. So we thank you for it. And Father, as we take communion and enjoy our fellowship meal this evening, uh, we ask for your blessing upon it, and we give you the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.